Chapter 14. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 14 of The House of the Seven Gables by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Read by Nicodemus. Phoebe's Goodbye. Holgrave, plunging into his tale with the energy and absorption natural to a young author, had given a good deal of action to the parts capable of being developed and exemplified in that manner. He now observed that a certain remarkable drowsiness, wholly unlike that with which the reader possibly feels himself affected, had been flung over the senses of his auditress. It was the effect, unquestionably, of the mystic gesticulations by which he had sought to bring bodily before Phoebe's perception the figure of the mesmerizing carpenter. With the lids drooping over her eyes, now lifted for an instant, and drawn down again as with leaden weights, she leaned slightly towards him, and seemed almost to regulate her breath by his. Holgrave gazed at her, as he rolled up his manuscript, and recognized an incipient stage of that curious psychological condition, which, as he had himself told Phoebe, he possessed more than an ordinary faculty of producing. A veil was beginning to be muffled about her, in which she could behold only him, and live only in his thoughts and emotions. His glance, as he fastened it on the young girl, grew involuntarily more concentrated. In his attitude there was the consciousness of power, investing his hardly mature figure with a dignity that did not belong to its physical manifestation. It was evident that with but one wave of his hand and a corresponding effort of his will, he could complete his mastery over Phoebe's yet free and virgin spirit. He could establish an influence over this good, pure, and simple child as dangerous and perhaps as disastrous as that which the carpenter of his legend had acquired and exercised over the ill-fated Alice. To a disposition like Holgrave's, at once speculative and active, there is no temptation so great as the opportunity of acquiring empire over the human spirit, nor any idea more seductive to a young man than to become the arbiter of a young girl's destiny. Let us, therefore, whatever his defects of nature and education, and in spite of his scorn for creeds and institutions, concede to the daguerreotypist the rare and high quality of reverence for another's individuality. Let us allow him integrity also, forever after to be confided in, since he forbade himself to twine that one link more which might have rendered his spell over Phoebe indissoluble. He made a slight gesture upward with his hand. "'You really mortify me, my dear Miss Phoebe,' he exclaimed, smiling half-sarcastically at her. My poor story, it is but too evident, will never do for Godey or Graham. Only think of your falling asleep at what I hope the newspaper critics would pronounce a most brilliant, powerful, imaginative, pathetic, and original winding up. Well, the manuscript must serve to light lamps with, if indeed being so imbued with my gentle dullness, it is any longer capable of flame. Me asleep? How can you say so? answered Phoebe, as unconscious of the crisis through which she had passed as an infant of the precipice to the verge of which it has rolled. No, no, I consider myself as having been very attentive, and though I don't remember the incidents quite distinctly, yet I have an impression of a vast deal of trouble and calamity, so no doubt the story will prove exceedingly attractive. By this time the sun had gone down, and was tinting the clouds toward the zenith with those bright hues which are not seen there until some time after sunset and when the horizon has quite lost its richer brilliancy. The moon, too, which had long been climbing overhead, 
and unobtrusively melting its disk into the azure, like an ambitious demagogue who hides his aspiring purpose by assuming the prevalent hue of popular sentiment, now began to shine out, broad and oval in its middle pathway. These silvery beams were already powerful enough to change the character of the lingering daylight. They softened and embellished the aspect of the old house. Although the shadows fell deeper into the angles of its many gables, and lay brooding under the projecting story and within the half-open door. With the lapse of every moment, the garden grew more picturesque. The fruit trees, shrubbery, and flower bushes had a dark obscurity among them. The commonplace characteristics, which at noontide it seemed to have taken a century of sordid life to accumulate, were now transfigured by a charm of romance. A hundred mysterious years were whispering among the leaves, whenever the slight sea-breeze found its way thither and stirred them. Through the foliage that roofed the little summer-house, the moonlight flickered to and fro, and fell silvery-white on the dark floor, the table, and the circular bench, with a continual shift in play, according as the chinks and wayward crevices among the twigs admitted or shut out the glimmer. So sweetly cool was the atmosphere, after all the feverish day, that the summer eve might be fancied as sprinkling dews and liquid moonlight with a dash of icy temper in them, out of a silver vase. Here and there a few drops of this freshness were scattered on a human heart, and gave it youth again, and sympathy with the eternal youth of nature. The artist chanced to be one on whom the reviving influence fell. It made him feel what he sometimes almost forgot, thrust so early as he had been into the rude struggle of man with man, how youthful he still was. It seems to me, he observed, that I never watched the coming of so beautiful an eve, and never felt anything so very much like happiness as at this moment. After all, what a good world we live in! How good and beautiful! How young it is, too, with nothing really rotten or age-worn in it! This old house, for example, which sometimes has positively oppressed my breath with its smell of decaying timber. And this garden, where the black mold always clings to my spade, as if I were a sexton delving in a graveyard. Could I keep the feeling that now possesses me? The garden would every day be virgin soil, with the earth's first freshness in the flavor of its beans and squashes. And the house, it would be like a bower in Eden, blossoming with the earliest roses that God ever made. Moonlight, and the sentiment in man's heart responsive to it, are the greatest of renovators and reformers. And all other reform and renovation, I suppose, will prove to be no better than moonshine. "'I have been happier than I am now, at least much gayer,' said Phoebe thoughtfully. "'Yet I am sensible of a great charm in this brightening moonlight, and I love to watch how the day, tired as it is, lags away reluctantly, and hates to be called yesterday so soon. I never cared much about moonlight before. What is there, I wonder, so beautiful in it tonight?' "'And you have never felt it before?' inquired the artist, looking earnestly at the girl through the twilight. "'Never,' answered Phoebe. "'And life does not look the same, now that I have felt it so. "'It seems as if I had looked at everything hitherto in broad daylight, "'or else in the ruddy light of a cheerful fire, glimmering and dancing through a room. "'Ah, poor me!' she added with a half-melancholy laugh. "'I shall never be so merry as before I knew Cousin Hepzibah and poor Cousin Clifford.' I have grown a great deal older in this little time, older and, I hope, wiser, and not exactly sadder, 
but certainly with not half so much lightness in my spirits. I have given them my sunshine, and have been glad to give it, but of course I cannot both give and keep it. They are welcome notwithstanding. You have lost nothing, Phoebe, worth keeping, nor which it was possible to keep, said Holgrave after a pause. Our first youth is of no value, for we are never conscious of it until after it is gone. But sometimes, always I suspect, unless one is exceedingly unfortunate, there comes a sense of second youth, gushing out of the heart's joy at being in love, or possibly it may come to crown some other grand festival in life, if any other such there be. This bemoaning of oneself, as you do now, over the first careless shallow gaiety of youth departed, and this profound happiness at youth regained, so much deeper and richer than that we lost, are essential to the soul's development. In some cases, the two states come almost simultaneously, and mingle the sadness and the rapture in one mysterious emotion. "'I hardly think I understand you,' said Phoebe. "'No wonder,' replied Holgrave, smiling, "'for I have told you a secret which I hardly began to know before I found myself giving it utterance. Remember it, however, and when the truth becomes clear to you, then think of this moonlight scene. It is entirely moonlight now, except only a little flush of faint crimson, upward from the west, between those buildings, remarked Phoebe. I must go in. Cousin Hepzibah is not quick at figures, and will give herself a headache over the day's accounts unless I help her. But Holgrave detained her a little longer. Miss Hepzibah tells me, observed he, that you return to the country in a few days. Yes, but only for a little while, answered Phoebe, for I look upon this as my present home. I go to make a few arrangements, and to take a more deliberate leave of my mother and friends. It is pleasant to live where one is much desired and very useful, and I think I may have the satisfaction of feeling myself so here. You surely may, and more than you imagine, said the artist. Whatever health, comfort, and natural life exists in the house is embodied in your person. These blessings came along with you, and will vanish when you leave the threshold. Miss Hepzibah, by secluding herself from society, has lost all true relation with it, and is in fact dead, although she galvanizes herself into a semblance of life, and stands behind her counter, afflicting the world with a greatly to be deprecated scowl. Your poor cousin Clifford is another dead and long buried person, on whom the governor and council have wrought a necromantic miracle. I should not wonder if he were to crumble away some morning after you are gone, and nothing be seen of him more except a heap of dust. Miss Hepzibah, at any rate, will lose what little flexibility she has. They both exist by you. I should be very sorry to think so, answered Phoebe gravely. But it is true that my small abilities were precisely what they needed, and I have a real interest in their welfare. An odd kind of motherly sentiment, which I wish you would not laugh at. And let me tell you frankly, Mr. Holgrave, I am sometimes puzzled to know whether you wish them well or ill. Undoubtedly, said the daguerreotypist, I do feel an interest in this antiquated, poverty-stricken old maiden lady, and this degraded, shattered gentleman, this abortive lover of the beautiful. A kindly interest, too, helpless old children that they are. But you have no conception what a different kind of heart mine is from your own. It is not my impulse, as regards these two individuals, either to help or hinder, but to look on, to analyze, to explain matters to myself and to comprehend the drama which, for almost two hundred years, 
has been dragging its slow length over the ground where you and I now tread. If permitted to witness the close, I doubt not to derive a moral satisfaction from it, though matters how they may. There is a conviction within me that the end draws nigh. But though Providence send you hither to help, and sends me only as a privileged and meet spectator, I pledge myself to lend these unfortunate beings whatever aid I can. I wish you would speak more plainly, cried Phoebe, perplexed and displeased, and above all that you would feel more like a Christian and a human being. How is it possible to see people in distress without desiring, more than anything else, to help and comfort them? You talk as if this old house were a theatre, and you seem to look at Hepzibah's and Clifford's misfortunes, and those of generations before them, as a tragedy, such as I have seen acted in the hall of a country hotel. Only the present one seems to be played exclusively for your amusement. I do not like this. The play costs the performers too much, and the audience is too cold-hearted. You are severe, said Holgrave, compelled to recognize a degree of truth in the piquant sketch of his own mood. And then, continued Phoebe, what can you mean by your conviction, which you tell me of, that the end is drawing near? Do you know of any new trouble hanging over my poor relatives? If so, tell me at once, and I will not leave them. Forgive me, Phoebe, said the daguerreotypist, holding out his hand, to which the girl was constrained to yield her own. I am somewhat of a mystic, it must be confessed. The tendency is in my blood, together with the faculty of mesmerism, which might have brought me to Gallows Hill in the good old times of witchcraft. Believe me, if I were really aware of any secret, the disclosure of which would benefit your friends, who are my own friends likewise, you should learn it before we part, but I have no such knowledge. You hold something back, said Phoebe. Nothing. No secrets but my own, answered Holgrave. I can perceive, indeed, that Judge Pynchon still keeps his eye on Clifford, in whose ruin he had so large a share. His motives and intentions, however, are a mystery to me. He is a determined and relentless man, with the genuine character of an inquisitor, and had he any object to gain by putting Clifford to the rack, I verily believe that he would wrench his joints from their sockets in order to accomplish it. But so wealthy and eminent as he is, so powerful in his own strength, and in the support of society on all sides, what can Judge Pension have to hope or fear from the imbecile-branded, half-torpid Clifford? Yet, urged Phoebe, you did speak as if misfortune were impending. Oh, that was because I am morbid, replied the artist. My mind has a twist aside, like almost everybody's mind, except your own. Moreover, it is so strange to find myself an inmate of this old pension house, and sitting in this garden, hark how Maul's well is murmuring, that were it only for this one circumstance, I cannot help fancying that destiny is arranging its fifth act for a catastrophe. There, cried Phoebe with renewed vexation, for she was by nature as hostile to mystery as the sunshine to a dark corner. You puzzle me more than ever. Then let us part friends, said Holgrave, pressing her hand, or if not friends, let us part before you entirely hate me, you who love everybody else in the world. Good-bye, then, said Phoebe frankly. I do not mean to be angry a great while, and should be sorry to have you think so. There has cousin Hepzibah been standing in the shadow of the doorway this quarter of an hour past. She thinks I stay too long in the damp garden. So good-night and good-bye. On the second morning thereafter, Phoebe might have been seen, in her straw bonnet, with a shawl on one arm and a little carpet-bag on the other, 
bidding adieu to Hepzibah and Cousin Clifford. She was to take a seat in the next train of cars, which would transport her to within half a dozen miles of her country village. The tears were in Phoebe's eyes. A smile, dewy with affectionate regret, was glimmering around her pleasant mouth. She wondered how it came to pass that her life of a few weeks, here in this heavy-hearted old mansion, had taken such hold of her, and so melted into her associations, as now to seem a more important centre-point of remembrance than all which had gone before. How had Hepzibah, grim, silent, and irresponsive to her overflow of cordial sentiment, contrived to win so much love? And Clifford, in his abortive decay, with the mystery of fearful crime upon him, and the close prison atmosphere yet lurking in his breath, how had he transformed himself into the simplest child, whom Phoebe felt bound to watch over, and be, as it were, the providence of his unconsidered hours? Everything at that instant of farewell stood out prominently to her view. Look where she would, lay her hand on what she might, the object responded to her consciousness, as if a moist human heart were in it. She peeped from the window into the garden, and felt herself more regretful at leaving this spot of black earth, vitiated with such an age-long growth of weeds, than joyful at the idea of again scenting her pine forests and fresh clover fields. She called Chanticleer, his two wives, and the venerable chicken, and threw them some crumbs of bread from the breakfast-table. These being hastily gobbled up, the chicken spread its wings and alighted close by Phoebe on the window-sill, where it looked gravely into her face and vented its emotions in a croak. Phoebe bade it be a good old chicken during her absence, and promised to bring it a little bag of buckwheat. "'Ah, Phoebe,' remarked Hepzibah, "'you do not smile so naturally as when you came to us. Then the smile chose to shine out. Now you choose it should. It is well that you are going back for a little while into your native air. There has been too much weight on your spirits. The house is too gloomy and lonesome. The shop is full of vexations, and as for me, I have no faculty of making things look brighter than they are. Dear Clifford has been your only comfort. Come hither, Phoebe, suddenly cried her cousin Clifford, who had said very little all the morning. Close, closer, and look me in the face. Phoebe put one of her small hands on each elbow of his chair, and leaned her face towards him, so that he might peruse it as carefully as he would. It is probable that the latent emotions of this parting hour had revived in some degree his bedimmed and enfeebled faculties. At any rate, Phoebe soon felt that if not the profound insight of a seer, yet a more than feminine delicacy of appreciation was making her heart the subject of its regard. A moment before, she had known nothing which she would have sought to hide. Now, as if some secret were hinted to her own consciousness through the medium of another's perception, she was fain to let her eyelids droop beneath Clifford's gaze. A blush, too, the redder because she strove hard to keep it down, ascended bigger and higher in a tide of fitful progress until even her brow was all suffused with it. "'It is enough, Phoebe,' said Clifford, with a melancholy smile. "'When I first saw you, you were the prettiest little maiden in the world, and now you have deepened into beauty. Girlhood has passed into womanhood. The bud is a bloom. Go now, I feel lonelier than I did. Phoebe took leave of the desolate couple, and passed through the shop, twinkling her eyelids to shake off a dewdrop, for considering how brief her absence was to be, and therefore the folly of being cast down about it, 
she would not so far acknowledge her tears as to dry them with her handkerchief. On the doorstep she met the little urchin, whose marvelous feats of gastronomy have been recorded in the earlier pages of our narrative. She took from the window some specimen or other of natural history, her eyes being too dim with moisture to inform her accurately whether it was a rabbit or a hippopotamus, put it into the child's hand as a parting gift, and went her way. Old Uncle Venner was just coming out of his door, with the wood horse and saw on his shoulder, and trudging along the street, he scrupled not to keep company with Phoebe, so far as their paths lay together, nor in spite of his patched coat and rusty beaver, and the curious fashion of his towel-cloth trousers, could she find it in her heart to outwalk him. "'We shall miss you next Sabbath afternoon,' observed the street philosopher. "'It is unaccountable how little while it takes some folks to grow just as natural to a man as his own breath. And begging your pardon, Miss Phoebe, though there can be no offense in an old man's saying it, that's just what you've grown to me. My years have been a great many, and your life is but just beginning. And yet you are somehow as familiar to me as if I had found you at my mother's door, and you had blossomed like a running vine all along my pathway since. Come back soon, or I shall be gone to my farm, for I begin to find these wood-sawing jobs a little too tough for my backache. Very soon, Uncle Venner, replied Phoebe. And let it be all the sooner, Phoebe, for the sake of those poor souls yonder, continued her companion. They can never do without you now, never, Phoebe, never. No more than if one of God's angels had been living with them, and making their dismal house pleasant and comfortable. Don't it seem to you they'd be in a sad case, if some pleasant summer morning like this, the angel should spread his wings and fly to the place he came from? Well, just so they feel, now that you're going home by the railroad. They can't bear it, Miss Phoebe, so be sure to come back. I am no angel, Uncle Venner, said Phoebe, smiling as she offered him her hand at the street corner. But I suppose people never feel so much like angels as when they are doing what little good they may. So I shall certainly come back. Thus parted the old man and the rosy girl, and Phoebe took the wings of the morning, and was soon flitting almost as rapidly away, as if endowed with the aerial locomotion of the angels to whom Uncle Venner had so graciously compared her. End of chapter 14 of The House of the Seven Gables by Nathaniel Hawthorne Read by Nicodemus